talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to okay let me tell you why you're wrong this time we're back with another chapter of adam smith's the wealth of nations and this one is a biggie uh, both in the weight of the topics covered as well as well it's a really long chapter today we're going to be covering the wealth of nations book one chapter 10 of the wages and profit in the different employments of labor and stock now, as y'all should well know by this point, Adam Smith didn't really have a knack for catchy titles. Fortunately, my edition of the book does a somewhat better job of shortening the title of the chapter for the page headers, calling it Inequality of Wages and Profit. Now, before you brace yourself for a long diatribe about things like income inequality, that's not quite what Smith is referring to here. The inequality that Smith is interested in is primarily centered around the question of why aren't all wages and profits across the entire economy the same? If we remember back to one of the central ideas that Smith gave us earlier in the book, that labor is the most basic component of wages, the, the, then one has to ask, why is there a difference in the wages paid to a, a day laborer for eight hours of labor and the wages paid to, say, a lawyer for eight hours of labor? The same question can be posed in regards to profits. Why are the profits of some industries higher than others? Now, before any of you start getting any ideas, no, Adam Smith is not suggesting that wages and profits should be uniform. He's simply asking the question so that he can answer it. Of course, of course there's a difference in the wages between day laborers and lawyers. There should be. 
And of course, some industries are bound to be more profitable than others. Smith isn't making a value statement with these questions. The inequalities across wages and profits are largely the result of market forces. So they should be generally appropriate inequalities. The question is, what factors present in the market account for these inequalities? He starts the chapter with this, quote, The whole of the advantages and disadvantages of the different employments of labor and stock must, in the same neighborhood, be either perfectly equal or continually tending to equality. If in the same neighborhood there was any employment evidently either more or less advantageous than the rest, so many people would crowd into it in the one case, and so many would desert it in the other, that its advantages would soon return to the level of other employments. This, at least, would be the case in a society where things were left to follow their natural course, where there, uh, where there was perfect liberty, and where every man was perfectly free both to choose what occupation he thought proper and to change it as often as he thought proper. Every man's interest would prompt him to seek the advantageous and shun the disadvantageous employment. So in a sense, wages and profits should be the same. As Smith points out here, all other things being equal, if the wages of a certain profession or the profits of a certain industry were to go up, then that increase would cause more people to shift over to them, which would crowd the market with competition, which would drive those wages or those profits back down to equilibrium. But we all know that this kind of thing doesn't happen, which means that all other things are not equal in, the, in this overall equation, and that there are certain key variables which count for the differences in wages and profits from one field to another. As far as wages are concerned, Smith counts five major variables which count for the inequality. Now, if you're out there listening and you, you feel like you've, you're being underpaid at your job, take note of these, because each one could serve as a possible justification for a raise. The first factor that Smith looks at is the agreeableness of the employment. He says, quote, the wages of labor vary with the ease or hardship, the cleanliness or dirtiness, the honorableness or dishonorableness of the employment. Thus, in most places, take the year round, a journeyman tailor earns less than a journeyman weaver. His work is much easier. A journeyman weaver earns less than a journeyman smith. His work is not always easier, but it is much cleaner. A journeyman blacksmith Though an artificer seldom earns so much in 12 hours as a collier, who is only a laborer, does in, uh, does in eight. His work is not quite so dirty, is less dangerous, and is carried on in daylight and above ground. Honor makes a great part of the reward of all honorable professions. In point of pecuniary gain, all things considered, they are generally under-recompensed, as I shall endeavor to show by and by. Disgrace has the contrary effect. The trade of a butcher is a brutal and odious business, 
but it is in most places more profitable than the greater part of common trades. The most detestable of all employments, that of public executioner, is in proportion to the quantity of work done better paid than any common trade whatever. So the less appealing a, the job, whether because of difficulty or working conditions or public perception, the higher the wage needs to be in order to incentivize people to take on those professions. If being an office worker paid the exact same as working in the sewage department, I don't think very many people would be on board for working in sewage. But naturally, we as a society need people working in, in the sewage department. So in order to get them to agree to take that job, a higher wage is offered. You all have effectively played this theory before. At some point in your life, you or a friend asked you if you would do fill in the blank for a million dollars. Would you show up to work naked for a million dollars? Would you eat a piece of rotten food for a million dollars? Would you do whatever for a million dollars? You're basically testing the theory that everyone has a price. It's not really a question of whether or not you would do those things, but more of what amount of money it would take to get you to do those things. The same is true with work. You might say to yourself, well, I would never work at a, a reptile house because I'm afraid of snakes. But I'd be willing to bet that if you found out that in the employees of a zoo's reptile house made $500,000 a year, you might get over your fear of snakes in a hurry. They don't make that much, but you see my point. And of course, society doesn't need to offer enough money and wages to get everyone to work an undesirable job. It just needs to get past the reservation price of enough people to fill the openings available. You might require a mid-six-figure salary to work in sanitation, but as long as enough people out there are willing to do that job for much less to cover the available positions, the salary will not rise to meet your price. Smith goes on to mention that employments that have become enjoyable pastimes tend to be those with very low wages. He specifically notes hunting and fishing. If we have any listeners out there who are avid hunters or fishermen, you may have at some point in your life said to yourself, I wish I could make a living off of my hobby. Well, that right there is the reason that you can't. You're talking about something that is, to you, so enjoyable that you'd be willing to do it for free. And, and really, more to the point, you're doing it at your own expense, since you have to cover your, your fishing poles, your hunting rifles, all the, all the gear that comes with that. Because of that, even though hunting and fishing were the most critical jobs back in the days of early man, your enjoyment of it ensures that your returns will always be minimal. Smith notes that the agreeableness or disagreeableness of a given field also will reflect profits in the same way that it affects wages. He gives this example, quote, Disagreeableness and disgrace affect the profits of stock in the same manner as the wages of labor. The keeper of an inn or a tavern 
who is never master of his own house, and who is exposed to the brutality of every drunkard, exercises neither a very agreeable nor a, uh, not, nor a very credible business. But there is scarce any common trade in which a small stock yields so great a profit. The second factor which affects wages is the cost of learning the business itself. Quote, A man educated at the expense of much labor and time to any of those employments which require extraordinary dexterity and skill may be compared to one of those expensive machines. The work which he learns to perform, it must be expected, over and above the usual wages of, com of common labor, will replace to him the whole expense of his education with at least the ordinary profits of an equally valuable capital. It must do this, too, in a reasonable time. And this is why skilled labor is paid more than unskilled labor, and, and also why there is a, an expectation for higher wages depending on the level of education completed. If you've taken the time to get your bachelor's degree or your master's degree or a PhD, you expect, and in fact you need, the wage you make to be higher than it would for somebody who didn't, because you need to be compensated for the time and effort and expense that it took to earn those degrees. Now, this isn't a demand of being made on the economy by those who went to college, though it may seem that way sometimes. It's more of a market imperative. After all, if the jobs that required advanced education didn't pay more than jobs without that requirement, well then, that advanced education would no longer be worth the effort and expense, and, and people would largely stop going through the trouble. The direction of the causal relationship here is one where those jobs with advanced education requirements pay more as a means to incentivize people to put in the effort and invest the money into their own education. If it were otherwise, the whole thing would break down. In Smith's example, this is why skilled labor such as mechanics, artificers, and manufacturers wages are higher than those of common country labor. In Smith's day, the, the professions above all required apprenticeships in order for someone to enter them. Apprenticeship at the time usually meant that the prospective worker had to enter into a term of service with a master, during which time all of the apprentice's labor was unpaid and considered as training. In some cases, there was even an upfront charge involved in order to be accepted as an apprentice. So that charge, as well as all the unpaid training time, had to be compensated for once the apprentice graduated and was able to practice their trade on their own. To make this arrangement worthwhile, then, the wages of those professions would need to be high enough to make the costs involved with entering them worth it. Smith then expands this out further to include education in what he calls the, quote, ingenious arts and liberal professions, basically anything requiring a college education. Because college was, at the time, both longer and more expensive than apprenticeship, the recompense for jobs requiring a college education must be higher still. Now, when shifting over to profits, Smith notes that there's 
very little difference in profits that can be earned based on the level of education required for the workmen of a trade. Even though the, the product of skilled labor may sell for a higher price, that difference is negated by the increased cost in the form of higher wages. The third factor in inequality is the constancy or regular nature of the employment itself. And here we get into some interesting territory in the debate over what drives the price of labor. If you remember from an earlier chapter, Smith went on a relatively small tangent when talking about how wages across the economy must always be enough for not just the subsistence, subsistence of the labor, but also enough for them to support a family. After all, if wages are not at such a level, then workers will not have as many, if any, children, and future generations will face a labor shortage. So there's a kind of unspoken social imperative that wages need to be high enough to ensure uh, maintaining, if not an expansion, of the pool of labor in the future. Now, for proponents of raising the minimum wage out there, be careful before you jump on this logical bandwagon, because if you put all your chips on this bet, you run into the counter-argument that, if this is true, then wages today should actually be lower than wages in the 18th century, because in Smith's day, we were dealing almost purely with single-income households. If subsistence is the only, or at least the key marker of wages, then today, in a world where a much higher number of households have multiple incomes, under this assumption, wages should drop back down to whatever the subsistence rate is. But we can save that full debate for another time. I just wanted to put that idea in your heads for now. What Smith says regarding the regularity of employment is this, quote, Employment is much more constant in some trades than in others. In the greater part of manufacturers, a journeyman may be pretty sure of employment almost every day in the year that he is able to work. A mason, or bricklayer, on the contrary, can work neither in hard frost nor in foul weather, and his employment at all other times depends upon the occasional calls of his customers. He is liable, in consequence, to be frequently without any. What he earns, therefore, while he is employed, must not only maintain him while he is idle, but make him some compensation for those anxious and desponding moments which the thought of so precarious a situation must sometimes occasion. Where the computed earnings of the greater part of manufacturers accordingly are nearly upon a level with the day's wages of common laborers, those of masons and bricklayers are generally from one-half more to double those wages. Where common laborers earn four or five shillings a week, masons and bricklayers frequently earn seven and eight. Where the former earn six, the latter often earn nine and ten. And where the former can earn nine and ten, as in London, the latter commonly earn fifteen and eighteen. No species of skilled labor, however, seems more easy to learn than that of masons and bricklayers. Chairmen in London, during the summer season, are said sometimes to be employed as bricklayers. The high wages of those workmen, therefore, 
are not so much the recompense of their skill as the compensation for the inconstancy of their employment. Here, though, we also see an equilibrium between factors that create inequality in wages because when inconsistency and disagreeableness meet, it serves to drive the wages even higher, though they cannot drive the wages too high. Smith says this, quote, When the inconstancy of employment is combined with the hardship, disagreeableness, and dirtiness of the work, it sometimes raises the wages, raises the wages of the most common labor above those of the most skilled artificers. A collier working by the piece is supposed at Newcastle to earn commonly above double, and in many parts of Scotland about three times the wages of common labor. His high wages arrive, rise altogether from the hardship, disagreeableness, and dirtiness of his work. His employment may, upon most occasions, be as constant as he pleases. The coal heavers in London exercise a trade which in hardship, dirtiness, and disagreeableness almost equals that of colliers, and from the unavoidable irregularity in the arrivals of coal ships, the employment of the greater part of them is necessary and necessarily very inconstant. If colliers therefore commonly earn double and triple the wages of common labor, it ought not to seem unreasonable that coal heavers should sometimes earn four and five times those wages. In the inquiry made into their condition a few years ago, it was found that at the rate at which they were then paid, they could earn from six to ten shillings a day. Six shillings are about four times the wages of common labor in London and in every particular trade the lowest common earnings may always be considered as those of the far greater number. How extravagant soever those earnings may appear, if they were more than sufficient to compensate all the disagreeable circumstances of the business, there would soon be so great a number of competitors as, in a trade which has no exclusive privilege, would quickly reduce them to a lower rate. And constancy of employment is, is yet another factor that, while it has a large impact on wages, has no impact on profits, because the employment of stock is not determined by the market, but rather by the holder of that stock. How regularly they employ it doesn't affect the profits that they earn when they do. The fourth factor in inequality, and, and, and this is one that I've talked about briefly in my episode about minimum wage, is the amount of trust placed on the worker in a particular field. As far as that goes, Smith says, the wages of labor vary according uh, to the small or great trust which may be reposed in the workmen. The wages of goldsmiths and jewelers are everywhere superior to those of many other workmen not only of equal, but of much superior ingenuity, on account of the precious materials with which they are entrusted. We trust our health to the physician, our fortune, and sometimes our life, and reputation to the lawyer and attorney. Such confidence could not safely be reposed in people of very mean or low condition. Their reward must be such, therefore, 
as may give them that rank in the society which is so important which so important a trust requires a long time and a great expense which must be laid out in their education when combined with the circumstance necessarily enhances still further the price of their labor compensation needs to be made in order to properly incentivize workers in certain fields where trust is critical smith uses jewelers and and, pre and preventing theft and doctors and preventing malpractice but i think this is one of those factors that gets overlooked especially as we start to take certain things for granted a worker at a manufacturing plant is someone who not only the management of that plant but also all of us as consumers put a lot of trust into without necessarily thinking about it i mean think about the car that you drive you get into that car and you just sort of assume that it's been assembled to specifications by workers who care very dearly about their jobs and doing them well you trust that as you get up to speed on the highway that your car will function safely and normally and you tend not to think about how much trust you've placed in someone that you've never met and their abilities to assemble the wheel housing properly and you also place a lot of trust in the fact that every other car on the road has had the same level of skill and focus on quality control too we all trust that the screws that hold the wheel housing together aren't going to come loose causing you to swerve into the car next to you and resulting in a 15 car pileup and that trust is fine and as it should be but never forget that that trust costs money in order to get that car and be able to have that level of trust the workers at that manufacturing plant need to be paid at a level equal to the trust placed in them they could be paid less but if they were we're all going to be need to be a lot more nervous whenever we get behind the wheel and management has an interest in paying them for that trust too because if an accident happens because of faulty assembly of the wheel housing it's the company that's going to get sued not the employee as i had mentioned in in that earlier episode i i do think that the clearest example of us taking trust for granted when it relates to wages comes up whenever the the wages of fast food employees are discussed in such debates these workers are exclusively talked about in terms of the skill level required to do their job and never in terms of the amount of trust that we place on them to service food that won't make us sick any job involving the the food that we consume is a job that involves a high degree of trust especially because we all tend to assume that the food in front of us is entirely safe it's that assumption that explains why there's always such a panic whenever there is an issue with the quality of food products and just like with automotive manufacturing the level of trust should cost money and the wages of those workers in whom we place that trust should probably reflect that dynamic so i guess that this time out having made the point that trust should be a key factor in assessing salaries for fast food workers i guess i have to break it to myself that smith said it first now 
trust does not reflect itself in profits, however. Smith tells us, quote, When a person employs only his own stock in trade, there is no trust, and the credit which he may get from other people depends not upon the nature of his trade, but upon their opinion of his fortune, probity, and prudence. The different rates of profit, therefore, in the different branches of trade, cannot arise from the different degrees of trust reposed in the traders. And that transitions us nicely into the fifth and final factor relating to inequalities in wages and profits, which Smith calls the probability of success. Now I'm going to start this one off with Smith's own words and, and we'll kind of circle back. Uh, Smith here says, quote, The probability that any particular person shall ever be qualified for the employment to which he is educated is very different in different occupations. In the greater part of mechanic trades, success is almost certain, but very uncertain in the liberal professions. Put your son apprentice to a shoemaker, there is little doubt of his learning to make a pair of shoes. But send him to study the law. It is at least twenty to one if he will ever make such proficiency as will enable him to live by this business. In a perfectly fair lottery, those who draw the prizes ought to gain all that is lost by those who draw the blanks. In a profession where twenty fail for one that succeeds, that one ought to gain all that should have been gained by the unsuccessful twenty. The counselor at law who, perhaps, at nearly forty years of age, begins to make something by his profession ought to receive the retribution not only of, uh, of his own so tedious and expensive education, but of that more than twenty others who are never likely to make anything by it. How extravagant soever the fees of counselors at law may sometimes appear, their real retribution is never equal to this. Compute in any particular place what is likely to be annually gained and what is likely to be annually spent by all the different workmen in any common trade, such as that of shoemaker or weavers, and you will find that the former sum will generally exceed the latter. But make the same computation with regard to all the counselors and students of law in all the different inns of court, and you will find that their annual gains bear but very small proportion to their annual expense, even though you rate the former as high and the latter as low, as can well be done. The lottery of law, therefore, is very far from being a perfectly fair lottery, and that as well as many other liberal and honorable professions, is, in point of pecuniary gain, evidently under-recompensed. Now, I will take a moment to point out something that I've always found kind of perversely funny throughout my own education in the liberal arts and sciences. Uh, while Smith focuses in on, on lawyers in this quote, he, he later expands this example to include all roles requiring higher education and at times specifically notes scholarly pursuits and, and philosophy. Specifically, that such pursuits are not nearly compensated enough to match the effort that went into pursuing them. Smith is basically saying that those working in scholarship and philosophy aren't being paid enough. 
which is funny coming from a university professor and a philosopher. This is a kind of thing that's it's a more common thread across philosophies than you might think. I remember uh, taking note uh, the interesting twist in uh, Plato's description of a perfect society, which uh, was ruled, according to him, by philosopher kings. So you mean to tell me that, according to your philosophy, the group of people who you feel are the only ones enlightened enough to rule the world just so happen to include you? That's awfully convenient. And Smith is doing a little bit of self-serving here as well, insisting that the profession that he happens to be a part of is being criminally underpaid. One wonders if he had a bit of an agenda when he wrote that piece. But Adam Smith does note that there are other compensations involved in such liberal professions that somewhat counter the inadequate salary. And these are important factors to include. The first being that of status or, or public admiration. It's sort of the opposite idea of having to pay more for disagreeable forms of labor. There are certain jobs out there that, beyond the financial compensation, there are benefits in regard to social status that will incentivize people to want those jobs and thus offset the amount of money that they'd be willing to take in order to have them. The opposite, too, is true. And there are professions that, while they're not disagreeable to perform, they're looked upon in society as less than respectable. In such jobs, the wages need to be higher in order to compensate for the social stigma of doing them. Smith, in creating an example of this phenomenon, uses the profession of acting. He says, quote, there are some very agreeable and beautiful talents of which the possession commands a certain sort of admiration, but of which the exercise for the sake of gain is considered, whether from reason or prejudice, as a sort of public prostitution. The pecuniary recompense, therefore, of those who exercise them in this manner must be sufficient not only to pay for the time, labor, and expense of acquiring the talents, but for the discredit which attends the employment of them as a means of subsistence. The exorbitant rewards of players, opera singers, opera dancers, etc., are founded upon those two principles, the rarity and beauty of the talents, and the discredit of, employment, of employing them in this manner. It seems absurd at first sight that we should despise their persons and yet reward their talents with the most profuse liberality. While we do the one, however, we must necessarily do the other. Should the public opinion or prejudice ever alter with regard to such occupations, their pecuniary recompense would quickly diminish. More people would apply to them, and the compensation would quickly reduce the price of their labor. Such talents, though far from being common, are by no means so rare as is imagined. Many people possess them in great means, uh, in great perfection, who disdain, uh, disdain to make use of them, and many more are capable of acquiring them. If anything could be 
honorably uh, could be made honorably by them. Now, this is certainly an example that is limited to the times in which Smith was living, where the profession of acting or performing was still largely looked down upon. Always a, an, an odd dynamic since theater and performance is incredibly popular, even in those days, but that's the way it was. Of course, it does cause us to question the fact that in our modern times, acting isn't held in nearly as low a regard, and in fact, actors are some of the most admired people in the world. So, that being the case, why hasn't there been a drop in the wages of actors and performers? If anything, their wages have skyrocketed, even when adjusted for inflation. This is an interesting question to ask, not, not necessarily to undercut the value of actors and performers in society, or even to insist that they're overpaid. If you believe that Smith's notions of market forces are correct, then on some level you have to concede that the outcomes that we're seeing are themselves correct, and we're simply not including all relevant variables if we can't figure out how we're getting to that number. An elevated status should lead to lower salaries for actors, but salaries for some actors are higher than ever. Now, this could be explained by Smith being a little off when he assumed that generally anyone could do the job of performing. I think that we recognize today that there is a world of difference between acting and acting well, and that doesn't seem to be something that Smith would concede to. There's also the notion that productions of entertainments have also become much, much more expensive in our modern era. Movie studios are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into movie, into the movies that they make, and thus placing a lot of trust onto the actors in those movies to be good enough to get people to come see them. That increased trust would, under Smith's model, justify the increased wages. We can delve further into the economics of entertainment at a time, but I thought that this piece of the chapter was worth exploring to see how, while societal conditions may have changed since the 18th century, what Smith is saying about the economy still applies fairly well. Some of the parameters may have changed, but the rules that he laid down still work just fine. Within this fifth factor of determining inequalities in wages, being that of the probability of success, Smith goes off on a slight tangent that makes his point, and without really meaning to, uh, he also essentially creates the subject of behavioral economics. Now, for those of you who have never heard of it, behavioral economics is a fairly new subcategory where some of the most fascinating research is currently being done. In fairness, it's not really new. Philosophers and economists have been nipping around the edges of this idea forever. But I guess we can say that it as a codified subject, it's fairly new. Behavioral economics has, has come to prominence as it counters and really more amends the previous assumptions in economics of rationality. There's enough to be mined here for probably a dozen future episodes, so for now I'm just going to sum it up by saying that while economists have spent centuries assuming a level of rationality on the part of 
players within the economy, they failed to recognize that rationality can often be subjective. So what factors you use to make decisions in the economy and what weight you would give to each of those factors may not be the same as what I, as an economist, think you should be doing. Therefore, any conclusions that I draw based on my assumptions of your decision-making process will likely be wrong, because I'm not factoring for your version of rationality. It's more complicated than that, but you should get the idea. Anyway, Smith hits this idea straight on when he notes that the probability of success contributes to determining wages, but that we are all terrible at assessing probabilities. He points out that human beings seem to have a kind of inborn optimism that even when faced with a low probability of success, just sort of jumps to the conclusion that they will be the ones to defy the odds. He writes, quote, The overweening conceit, which the greater part of men have of their own abilities, is an ancient evil remarked by the philosophers and moralists of all ages. Their absurd presumption of their own good fortune has been less taken notice of. It is, however, if possible, still more universal. There is no man living who, when in tolerable health and spirits, has not some share of it. The chance of gain is, by every man, more or less overvalued, and the chance of loss is, by most men, undervalued. And by scarce any man who is in toler tolerable health and spirits valued more than it is worth. As an example of this behavioral quirk, Smith directs us to the existence and popularity of the lottery in what can only be described in the modern parlance as an epic takedown. Smith has this to say about the lottery, quote, that the chance of gain is naturally overvalued. We may learn from the universal success of lotteries. The world neither ever saw nor ever will see a perfectly fair lottery, or one in which the whole gain compensated the whole loss, because the undertaker could make nothing by it. In the state lotteries, the tickets are really not worth the price which is paid by the original subscribers, and yet commonly sell in the market for 20, 30, and sometimes 40%. The vain hope of gaining some of the great prizes is the sole cause of this demand. The soberest people scarce look upon it as a folly to pay a small sum for the chance of gaining ten or twenty thousand pounds, though they know that even that small sum is perhaps twenty or thirty percent more than the chance is worth. In a lottery in which no prize exceeded twenty pounds, though, in other respects, it approached much nearer a perfectly fair one than the common state lotteries. There would not be the same demand for tickets. In order to have a better chance for some of the great prizes, some people purchase several tickets, and others small shares in still a greater number. There is not, however, a more certain proposition in mathematics than that the more tickets you adventure upon, the more likely you are to be a loser. Adventure upon all the tickets in the lottery, and you lose for certain, and the greater the number of your tickets, the nearer you approach to this certainty.
he also expands this idea to, to the market for insurance, where he feels that the, the chance of loss is often undervalued by the insurers themselves. He, he feels that in a completely rational world, insurance wouldn't really exist, because with the risks involved, no great profit can possibly be made from such a business. Now, I'll hold off on examining the modern comparison on this one for a later episode, but I think if, that if we look around today, we might have material enough to argue with Adam Smith on this one. I would just follow this up by pointing out that in 2002, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral economics, specifically on human judgment under uncertainty. And in 2017, Richard Thaler won a Nobel Prize for his, uh, for his, quote, pioneering work in establishing that people are predictably irrational in ways that defy economic theory. And while both Nobel Prizes are incredibly well-deserved, and both men have certainly made huge contributions to the field of economics, I point them out to highlight that my little catchphrase in these episodes is no joke, because... The topic that both of these Nobel laureates won their prizes for was in fact written, just as a side tangent, 200 years earlier by Adam Smith. Again, that's to take nothing away from either of them, rather to continue to make the point that we are all truly just endeavoring in economics to keep proving Adam Smith right. Moving on, Smith next highlights that while all human beings are generally terrible at assessing probabilities or success of failure, young people are somehow especially worth it, worse at it. Quote, The contempt of risk and the presumptions of, of presumptuous hope of success are in no period of life more active than at the age at which young people choose their profession how little the fear of misfortune is, than capable of balancing the hope of good luck, appears still more evidently in the readiness of the common people to enlist as soldiers or go to sea than in the eagerness of those of better fashion to enter into what are called the liberal professions. This tendency of young people to, to undervalue the risk of loss and overvalue the, the potential for gain, Smith feels explains the drive of some to join the military, and, and further, why, why wages for soldiers are so low. He says, quote, What a common soldier may lose is obvious enough. Without regarding the danger, however, young volunteers never enlist so readily as at the beginning of a new war, and though they have scarce any chance of preferment, they figure to themselves in their youthful fancies a thousand occasions of acquiring honor and distinction which never occur. These romantic hopes make the whole price of their blood. Their pay is less than that of common laborers, and in actual service, their fatigues are much greater. The same applies for a career in the Navy, though, though Smith notes that, that soldiers tend to be held in higher esteem than the sailor. Uh, he sums this up by observing that the dangers inherent in some of these trades are, rather than being seen as deterrents, seen by the young as enticements. What Smith calls danger, others would call adventure. 
and that difference in perception has a real impact on wages. Quote, The dangers and hairbreadth escapes of a life of adventures, instead of disheartening young people, seem frequently to recommend a trade to them. A tender mother among the inferior ranks of people is often afraid to send her son to school at a seaport town, lest the sight of the ships and the conversation and adventures of the sailors should entice him to go to sea. The distant prospect of hazards from which we can hope to extricate ourselves by courage and address is not disagreeable to us and does not raise the wages of labor in any employment. It is otherwise with those in which courage and address can be of no avail. In trades which are known to be very unwholesome, the wages of labor are always remarkably high. Unwholesomeness is a species of disagreeableness, and its effects upon the wages of labor are to be ranked under that general head. Probability of success is, is one of the few factors here that affects profits just as it affects wages. If there is a low probability of success in a given venture, it will, by necessity, create higher returns for those who do succeed in order to make the risk worthwhile. It has to, or else the business venture would simply cease to exist entirely. Interestingly, Smith points out that while an increase in risk will lead to an increase in profits, the two don't always move exactly in proportion to each other. They can't, because if they did, the returns from risky investments would incentivize more competitors to enter the market and thus drive down the returns. He says, quote, The most hazardous of all trades, that of a smuggler, though when the adventure succeeds, it is likewise the most profitable, is the, inf is the infallible road to bankruptcy. The presumptuous hope of success seems to act here as upon all other occasions and to entice so many adventurers into those hazardous trades that their compensation reduces the profit below what is sufficient to compensate the risk. To compensate it completely, the common returns ought, over and above the ordinary profits of stock, not only to make up for all occasional losses, but to afford a surplus profit to the adventurer of the same nature with the profit of insurers. But if the common returns were sufficient for all this, bankruptcies would not be more frequent in these than in other trades. So, of the five factors that determine inequalities in wages, only two of them also affect profits. And it's important to recognize that most inequalities in profit are a result of having to pay out higher or lower wages for different species of labor. There's also another distinction that takes us back to, to a point Smith made in an earlier chapter where some equalities can also be accounted for by misinterpreting what parts of revenue should be considered wages and what parts should be considered profits. Smith has brought this up when talking about the profits of stock, and, and given the example of a business owner who is also the sole employee of his own business. While he may consider all of his revenue to be profits, in fact, some of it should be seen as his wages as a worker, and some of it as his profits as the owner. Here, 
Smith gives us the example of uh, an apothecary. He says, quote, Apothecary's profit becomes a byword denoting something uncommonly extravagant. This great apparent profit, however, is frequently no more than the reasonable wages of labor. The skill of an apothecary is as a much nicer and more delicate matter than that of any artificer whatever, and the trust which is reposed in him of much greater importance. He is the physician of the poor in all cases, and of the rich when the distress or danger is not very great. His reward, therefore, ought to be suitable to his skill and his trust, and it arises generally from the price at which he sells his drugs. But the whole drugs which the best employed apothecary in a large market town will sell in a year may not perhaps cost him above thirty or forty pounds, though he should sell them, therefore, for three or four hundred or a thousand percent uh, profit, this may frequently be no more than the reasonable wages of his labor charged, uh, in the only way in which he can charge them, upon the price of his drugs. The greater part of the apparent profit is real wages, disguised in the garb of profit. He also explains the high rate of profit for uh, small grocer, grocers, uh, which, given their size and the, the size of their market, Seems like they should be less, but, but Smith explains this, and, and he does it in this way. Quote, In a small seaport town, a little grocer will make 40 or 50% upon a stock of a single hundred pounds, while a considerable wholesale merchant in the same place will scarce make 8 or 10% upon a stock of 10,000. The trade of the grocer may be necessary for the conveniency of the inhabitants, and the narrowness of the market may not admit the employment of a larger capital in the business. A man, however, must not only live by his trade, but live by it suitably to the qualifications which it requires. Besides possessing a little capital, he must be able to read, write, and account, and must be a tolerable judge, too, of perhaps... Fifty or sixty different sorts of foods, their prices, qualities, and the markets where they are to be had cheapest. He must have all the knowledge, in short, that is necessary for a great merchant, which nothing hinders him from becoming but the want of sufficient capital. Thirty or forty pounds a year cannot be considered as too great a recompense for the labor of a person so accomplished. Deduct this from the seemingly great profits of his capital, and little more will remain, perhaps than, than the ordinary profits of stock. The greater part of the apparent profit is, in this case, two real wages. Basically speaking, you may look at two merchants, one making a 50% profit and one making a 5% profit, and jump to the conclusion that the first one is more profitable. But the rate of profit is only meaningful when it's looked at in comparison to the total amount of realized sales. If our first merchant is making 50% profit off of a total of $50,000 in sales, then their take-home will be $25,000. But if our second merchant is making 5% profit off of a million dollars in sales, then their take-home would be $50,000. 
The rate of profit is therefore only important when it's viewed in proportion to the amount of revenue because at the end of the day, the 5% profit makes the second merchant twice as much money as the 50% profit of the first merchant. So we've gone through Smith's five factors of, of wage and profit inequality, and, and I think that it's important to point out here that Smith's purpose in pointing these out is, is not to demonstrate real inequality, but rather to demonstrate how wages and profits are in fact equal. I know that sounds confusing. Let me explain. The wages in real money are not the same, depending on the job or profession. But the factors that account for that inequality are not only what explain why the wages of some jobs are higher or lower than others, but they also serve as the, as the compensating factor, which, if we put it into an equation, should make all wages equal. Think of it this way. Uh, a disagreeable job, like working in sewage, has a higher wage than other jobs. But to clearly see what the real compensation is, you would have to express it in terms of the higher wage minus the degree of disagreeableness of having to wade through sewage. Likewise, a job that's very agreeable, like being an ice cream taster, will have a lower wage in terms of real dollars, but you would have to express it as that lower wage plus the value of the fact that you get to make money by eating ice cream. Now those two, the sewage equation and the ice cream equation, when the value of all factors are determined, should wind up being equal to each other. Or, as Smith puts it, quote, the five circumstances above mentioned, though they occasion considerable inequalities in the wages of labor and profits of stock, occasion none in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages, real or imaginary, of the different employments of either. The nature of those circumstances is such that they make up for a small pecuniary gain in some and counterbalance a greater one in others. That is essentially a labor market in equilibrium, where, where wages are effectively equal, even though they aren't actually equal in terms of money, they are equal in terms of money, plus or minus, any compensating factors involved. Of course, this kind of stable inequality can only exist under three circumstances that Smith lays out here. The first is that the employments where this equality exists must be well known and long established. There's an important exception when it comes to equality and wages when we're dealing with new or previously unheard of lines of work. As Smith says, quote, when all other circumstances are equal, wages are generally higher in new than in old trades. When a projector attempts to establish a new manufacturer, he must at first entice his workmen from other employments by higher wages than they can either earn in their own trades or than the nature of his work would otherwise require, and a considerable time must pass away before he can venture to reduce them to the common level. Now this also extends to profits. When, when a new market emerges, there's a window of opportunity where huge profits can be made. 
emerging markets are often risky, which also means that there is potential for high returns as well. Imagine if you invented a new thing, and it was the kind of thing that everybody wanted. They just didn't know that they wanted it until it existed. Upon entering the market, you'd face a landscape of high demand, and since you created this product, you're the only supplier of it. For that initial period, your profits would be astronomical under those conditions. Of course, this wouldn't last. The high profits that you make would serve as an incentive for other people to want to get in on this highly profitable market. They would create their own versions of your product, introduce them into the market, and as these competitors emerged, you would have to lower your price, and thus your profits. Eventually, the market would achieve a stable equilibrium with wages and profits at lower, more reasonable levels, levels equal to wages and profits in all other established fields adjusted for compensating factors. But for that brief window, wages and profits would be abnormally high. The second circumstance is that the employment must be in its natural state. What that means is that every employment has a usual level of demand for it. But of course, there are always circumstances that temporarily alter that level of demand. Wages for farmhands go up during the harvest, but that higher level is due to an outside factor and would not be the usual wages of a farmhand in the future. In order for the equality to exist, you have to look at the usual state of those wages and, and not at a time when other variables are causing changes to the norm. Uh, one of the most uh, prescient examples Smith gives is uh, the following, quote, In a decaying manufacturer, on the contrary, many workmen, rather than quit their old trade, are contented with smaller wages than would otherwise be suitable to the nature of their employment. Now, this here serves to explain a lot of what we may be seeing in our modern economy, but more on that in later episodes. When it comes to profits, we must also look at the profits made at the usual price of the commodity produced. There are any number of factors that will affect the price of a given commodity. Shortages, abundances, sharp spikes, or drops in demand, but... Those outliers are just that. He says, quote, The profits of stock vary with the price of the commodities in which it is employed. As the price of any commodity rises above the ordinary or average rate, the profits of at least some part of the stock that is employed in bringing it to market rise above their proper level, and as it falls, they sink below it. All commodities are more or less liable to variations of price, but some are much more so than others. In all commodities, which are produced by human industry, the quantity of industry annually employed is necessarily regulated by the annual demand, in such a manner that the average annual produce may, as nearly as possible, be equal to the average annual consumption. In some employments, it has already been observed, the same quantity of industry will always produce the same or very nearly the same quantity of commodities. In the linen or woolen manufactures, for example, 
the same number of hands will annually work up very nearly the same quantity of linen and woolen cloth. The variations in the market price of such commodities, therefore, can arise only from some accidental variations in demand. A public mourning raises the price of black cloth. But as the demand for most sorts of plain linen or, and woolen cloth is pretty uniform, so is likewise the price. But there are other employments in which the same quantity of industry will not always produce the same quantity of commodities. The same quantity of industry, for example, will in different years produce very different quantities of corn, wine, hops, sugar, tobacco, etc. The price of such commodities therefore varies not only with the variations of demand, but with the much greater and more frequent variations of quantity and is consequently extremely fluctuating. But the profit of some of the dealers must necessarily fluctuate with the price of the commodities. The operations of the speculative merchant are principally employed about such commodities. He endeavors to buy them up when he foresees that their price is likely to rise, and sell them when it is likely to fall. This kind of departure from the usual is, is more common than you may think, especially, as Smith notes, in certain markets, because not all producers of commodities can rapidly respond to shifts in demand. As Smith pointed out, agriculture is probably the clearest example of this, because once a particular crop is planted, it's planted. If you're growing corn, and, and you've just planted a new crop and demand for corn skyrockets, well, there's not much you can do about it because you can't make the corn grow faster. Likewise, if demand for corn plummets, you can't do much about that either because, well, it's planted. You just have to let it grow, sell it for a loss, and grow something else the next season. Now, the third circumstance is that the employments need to be the only employment of the people occupying them. This may seem like a, a weird distinction to make, but let's remember that wages are essentially based on a, a kind of silent bidding war between workers. Businesses always want to pay out the lowest wages possible for the work that they need done because it lowers their overhead costs. There are particular exceptions, but, you know, where they will offer higher wages in order to entice a higher quality of employees uh, to come work for them. But even then, they aren't going to offer any more than they have to to get the desired effect. As a result, workers can get, get jobs by being willing to work for less money. If you can survive off of $10,000 less per year than somebody else, that's going to make you a very attractive prospective hire. Where this becomes important to sole employment is in the fact that somebody who is working multiple jobs can afford to make less in both of them because the combined income from both jobs will put them at or above their rate of subsistence. If a given job has an average salary of $40,000 a year, and you apply for it while simultaneously working a side job that pays you $15,000 a year, you can bid a lower salary for this new job. Even 
if you bid low and, and say that you'll take the job for $30,000 a year, $10,000 lower than the average, your combined income is still $45,000, which you should be able to live off of. Whereas somebody who's applying to the same job and doesn't have any other source of income may need their salary to be at that $40,000 average in order to cover their expenses because, again, it will be their only source of income. In this sense, workers in, economy, in, in an economy having multiple jobs serves to drive down wages across the board. This is a particularly relevant concept in, in what has been dubbed our modern gig economy where it's increasingly common for people to work a job as well as having a, a side hustle in order to make more money. One of the more common versions of this today are people who work a job but also moonlight as Uber and Li or Lyft drivers. They see it as an opportunity to augment their income, but the downside of it is that this dynamic serves to further drive down their and everyone else's wages. Based on Smith's description, apparently the, the gig economy was alive and well back in the 18th century. Uh, he says here, quote, When a person derives his subsistence from one employment, which does not occupy the greater part of his time, in the intervals of his leisure, he is often willing to work at another for less wages than would otherwise suit the nature of the employment. There still subsists in many parts of Scotland a set of people called cutters or cottagers, though they are more frequent some years ago than they are now. They are a sort of outservants of landlords and farmers. The usual reward which they receive from their masters is a house, a small garden for pot herbs, as much grass as will feed a cow, and perhaps an acre or two of bad arable land. When their master has occasion for their labor, he, give, he gives them, besides, two pecks of oatmeal a week, worth about 16 pence sterling. During a great part of the year, he has little or no occasion for their labor, and the cultivation of their own little possession is not sufficient to occupy the time which is left at their own disposal. When such occupiers were more numerous than they are at present, they are said to have been willing to give their spare time for very small recompense to anybody and to have wrought for less wages than other labors. In ancient times, they seem to have been common all over Europe, in countries ill-cultivated and worse inhabited. The greater part of the landlords and farmers could not otherwise provide themselves with the extraordinary number of hands which country labor requires at certain seasons. The daily or weekly recompense which such laborers occasionally received from their masters was evidently not the whole price of their labor. Their small tenement made a considerable part of it. This daily or weekly recompense, however, seems to have been considered as the whole of it by many writers who have collected the prices of labor and provisions in ancient times and who have taken pleasure in representing both as wonderfully low. The produce of such labor comes frequently cheaper to market than would otherwise be suitable to its nature. Stockings in many parts of Scotland are knit much cheaper than they can anywhere be wrought upon the loom. They are the work of servants and laborers who derive the principal part of their subsistence from some other employment. 
more than a thousand pair of Shetland stockings are annually imported into Leith, of which the price is from five pence to seven pence a pair. At Leerwick, the small capital of the Shetland Islands, ten pence a day, I have been assured is a common price of common labor. In the same islands, these knit worsted stockings to the value of a guinea a pair and upwards. The spinning of linen yarn is carried on in Scotland nearly in the same way as the knitting of stockings, by servants who are chiefly hired for other purposes. They earn but a very scanty subsistence, who endeavor to get their whole livelihood by either of those trades. In most parts of Scotland, she's a good spinner who can earn 20 pence a week. Interestingly, Smith also notes that the the gig economy uh, does have some ramifications concerning what it says about the state of the economy as a whole. He says, quote, In opulent countries, the market is generally so extensive that any one trade is sufficient to employ the whole labor and stock of those who occupy it. Instances of people living by one employment and at the same time deriving some little advantage from another occur chiefly in poor countries. Now, whether our current gig economy is a sign of economic uh, collapse or downturn, or if we're currently in a strange exception to that rule is yet to be seen, and, and certainly worth further discussion of its own. But for now, I'm going to end this episode. Uh, in case you didn't notice from the title, this is going to have to be part one of two for this chapter. Uh, conveniently, uh, Smith breaks the chapter itself into two parts, so to keep this from being a four-hour long episode, uh, I'm going to do the same. Uh, this, this chapter, chapter 10, and the next one are both monumentally long, and I'll be breaking them both up to keep things more easily digestible. Uh, chapter 11 is actually going to need to be broken up into three parts, but we'll deal with that when we get there. I don't mean to dwell on them too much, but this and the, the following chapter cover some hugely important concepts in economics, and, and I am trying to avoid testing anybody's attention span. Uh, as always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, or why Adam Smith is wrong here. Um, best place to do so is on our Facebook group. Uh, you can search, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, or just check the show notes because I, I uh, leave the link in uh, to the Facebook group in each one of those. Uh, yeah, come on out, join the conversation, leave a comment, throw a suggestion for a future episode, anything you want. It's a, it's a pretty good uh, forum right now. Uh, and if you needed more reason to join the Facebook group, I, I recently posted the uh, first of our OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong t-shirt designs. Again, still working out the details on them, but the t-shirts will be coming soon. So be looking out for that. Uh, not on Facebook. Not a problem. Uh, you can always email me at OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong at gmail.com. It's all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Be sure to take a minute and give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, doing so really, really helps the podcast get noticed by more people. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, 
do have another podcast. Uh, my fiance and I uh, talk about planning our wedding. It's called Let's Plan a Wedding. So uh, check that out. And of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a topic episode and then back in two weeks with part two of chapter 10 covering the inequalities occasioned by the policy of Europe. With that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.